Father, we just acknowledge that our hearts are really stony and hard and distracted. And your words are hard to discern. But if your spirit would illumine these words, Lord, we will see you and love you and follow you. So I pray that it would be so. For I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. What a, what a privilege it is to just like be together, right? And uh, so we're going to start a new sermon series on the book of Hebrews. So if you're new, I'm really glad you're here. Like during a normal sermon, you guys, what I would do is I would take a passage, uh, explain it, maybe have a few illustrations, try to apply it. Uh, but this is an introductory sermon. And so I'm going to do it. It's going to be a little different. I'm going to use this sermon to kind of help us uh, understand the historical context. And what I really want is y'all to understand the pastoral aims of uh, the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, now, some of you guys just love like introductory sermons. Like y'all just love it. And you're just totally geeking out. You're like cool theology and like history and you're totally into it. Some of you are like, Garcia, go ahead and just dive in already. And if that's you, I'm really sorry. I, I, I do think that this is important. That's why I'm doing this. Uh, I, um, my prayer is that all of us would like grow in our love for the Savior and that we would have a deeper appreciation for his word. And so, uh, so I need to do this stuff up front uh, because um, Hebrews is complex. Let me just say it up front. The book of Hebrews is complex. At times, I mean, you guys know, you have read this in your devotional. It's almost impossible to understand. Hebrews actually quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament letter or gospel or book. It's just packed with it. And if the Old Testament is hard to understand, how much the New Testament using the Old Testament. So it's a doozy. But that's not the only thing that makes Hebrews so unique. Uh, Hebrews, even though it says in your Bible, the letter to the Hebrews, it's not a letter. It's a sermon. So I am preaching a sermon on a sermon. That's super meta. I know. It's kind of getting crazy. Uh, there are a few ways that we actually know that this is a sermon. I mean, first of all, chapter 1, verse 1, like there's no introduction. Like, hi, Paul, apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ. None of that. Just jumps right in, right? This is not a letter. Uh, it's not, you know, you'll see that with Paul, James, and Peter, but not here. And um, we actually don't even know who wrote this sermon, except that it's someone from the apostolic community, and he appears to be a traveling companion with Timothy, right? We know that because in chapter 13, the preacher's going to say, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see, see, uh, I shall see if he comes soon, right? So he's even mentioning that. But also, he's like, because he's a preacher, he's sensitive to time. And he doesn't want his sermon to last too long. Just like you. You don't want the sermon to last too long. Your eyes will start rolling in the back of your head, right? But he says, this is what he says in, verse, in chapter 11. He says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Brock. And then he mentions a whole host of other things, right? So he's a preacher trying to be sensitive. But perhaps the most compelling evidence that this is actually a sermon is found in chapter 13 at the very end, verse 22. He's going to say, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with the word of my exhortation, the word of exhortation, for I have written you briefly. So he calls this thing that he just did a word of exhortation. Now, in the first century, 
That was a very typical way to describe a synagogue homily. In fact, in, in, you're going to see uh, in the book of Acts, Luke writes describing the situation that Paul was in. And he says, uh, he's in a synagogue and he says, After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation, any word of encouragement, Say it. You see how he did that? And I'll mention all of this. I'll start this way because it's going to be really helpful to understand Hebrews if you understand that it's a sermon. See, because uh, sermons are preached by pastors who have people who they care about and they love. They care deeply for the welfare of their listeners. And so this preacher is a concerned friend. He, he's not trying to manipulate people. He's not trying to make them feel guilty. He knows the unique difficulties of their original audience and what they're going through. And so he's, just, he's writing to encourage them. And providentially, you and I, we have a lot in common with the original audience. I'm, I'm going to get to that here in a little bit. But because we have a lot in common with the original audience, this sermon, you guys, Hebrews, is like just what we need. Like this is in God's providence. This is what we need today. Because Hebrews, it's like other sermons, right? It, it takes a passage of scripture, it explains it, it illustrates it, it offers applications and exhortations, right? And it's just going to speak straight to us. So in order to kind of prepare to hear this magnificent sermon that he writes, what we're going to do today is just explain and look at three aspects. Note takers, listen up, here we are. First, we're going to look at the historical context and then we're going to look at the principal problem that this sermon is addressing from beginning to end. And then we're going to look at the solution that it provides. So the context, the problem that it addresses, and the solution that he offers throughout the book of Hebrews. Does that sound good? All right, let's get right into this. We're going to look first at the context. So uh, some of you guys know I, you know, just down south here, I graduated from the Air Force Academy. And every cadet, every student that gets in, they have to go through basic cadet training. The students there call it beast because it's kind of nasty, right? I mean, the memories I have of like basic training are still very vivid in my mind. It was actually the most miserable time in my life. Like people are like constantly screaming at you. They're telling you how to eat, how to walk, how to talk. They literally change everything about you. It doesn't matter like where you come from. The, the instructors, the cadre, they're trying to assimilate you into a new culture. Now, I'm not sure if you've been around military culture much, but it's very distinctive. Like, everyone has, like, the same haircut, right? They, all, they all use the same, like, lingo and words. They tell the same stories. But that culture is really important. And the indoctrination process, like, starts right at basic training. And so when the students first get there, they're just a bunch of individuals, right? But all of those things are systematically like ripped from them and they're transformed with these new identities. Now, some of the students that show up at basic head training, uh, they still want to be individuals, right? They, and they don't always like respond so well to the screaming and the harshness. And so what happens is the cadre, they start getting really clever. They get really clever. So when an individual, a new basic cadet, is not performing to standards, the instructors will punish the entire squadron. 
Not just the underperforming cadet, but everyone gets punished, right? And in some cases, they'll make that individual, the rebel, actually just watch. They'll, they'll actually pull him out so he doesn't get punished. And so I have this memory, you guys, where they made all of us, like the whole squadron, put our arms out like this, and they put a bunch of books in our hands, right? And they told us we can't go but don't, but, but under 90 degrees or parallel. To go. I mean, my arms are feeling like going to fall off. I'm writhing in pain. Everyone is like losing it. And there's that one guy just drinking his Coke, sitting on a lawn chair. Now, listen, to me. that was a painful experience for me. I promise you, it was more painful for him. The shame and the embarrassment he felt was enormous. In fact, it ends up being the pressure of the squadron, not just the instructors, that ultimately persuades this one student to reject his individuality. Because the squadron is really unsupportive, perhaps more so of his individuality than even the instructors. And so what happens is within this dominant culture, it was deeply shameful to be individualistic. There's no place for that in military culture, you see. And as you can imagine, the pressure by the community was intense. All right, that's all good for military culture. But I share with you that story because I want you to understand how social pressures, or more specifically, pressures by dominant cultures, work on minority cultures. It's powerful and persuasive. So dominant cultures can exert powerful, incredible power over minority cultures. And that, you guys, is what was happening to the original audience who's hearing the sermon, you see. Listen, it was important for y'all to understand. So Christianity is like born out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? It, it understood itself as being the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. So it began with like 11 men and a few women, but very quickly, tons of people, wildfire, began to believe with faith. And they believed, like they really believed that Jesus was the risen Lord. He is the human form of the creator of the whole universe who died to take away the sins of the world. They believed, I mean, they really believed this, that through this Messiah, that God could only and truly be known. And so what happened is that Jesus' teachings had this radical effect on the community of people who believed. And they started talking differently, and they, they spent their money differently, and they, they thought about sex and sexual ethics different than their culture. But really, they were considered a minority and seen as subversive. And maybe they were. And so their Christian faith brought them into a time of intense conflict with the larger society. The dominant culture looked negatively upon the lives and the beliefs of Christians. And so the larger culture tried to neutralize the Christians in order to make them behave and live and believe just like the rest of the Roman Empire. And here's just a quick brief history of how this thing happens. As early as 49 AD, all right, this is like less than 20 years after Jesus is resurrected. Think about this. It's like 2003 or something like that, all right? Like 49 AD, the emperor, uh, Roman emperor Claudius, he expels the Christians from Rome. And we learn about this from this guy named Suetonius. He's a Roman writer who wrote various biographies on the various um, emperors. So the audience of Hebrews are those same people who were expelled and they stood 
firm during this initial persecution. And in fact, the preacher even calls back to that a moment in, in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me just read for me what the preacher says. as he This is 10.32. He says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you, you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. He's like, they even took your stuff! And man, you guys stayed firm. They were strong during that first wave of oppression. But now when Hebrews has written this sermon, it's 15 years later. So a little bit of time has elapsed. So these Christians are 15 years older. And now a new crisis is emerging, confronting them with this fresh experience of suffering. And they are compelled to confront the cost of discipleship. And I mean the cost of discipleship once again. And this time it appears that the threat is even more serious. And so he, the pastor in, in chapter 12, he says, he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's like, you guys, y'all haven't died yet. The last time they just took your stuff. But it looks like dying is a real possibility this go around. And let me explain why. In 64 AD, this is remembered, I don't know, history guys, for the great fire in Rome. The Christian community, they're all gathering in a bunch of house churches all around Rome, and they became the topic of gossip. And there's all these weird distortions about their faith, and it began to seriously affect their civil status and their reputation in their own communities. And so when this massive fire breaks out, it destroys half the city, and this created even more tension with all the citizens. Now, to be sure, everyone understood, both Christians and pagans, they all believed that Nero, who's now the new emperor in Rome, that he started the fire. So to silence these allegations and to distract the attention away from himself, Nero blames the Christians, and then he orders that the imperial police move against all the Christians. Known Christians were tortured and arrested. It's important to note, just for reference, because this is going to become important later, that it was okay and accepted to be Jewish. See, listen, Christianity was considered like, in the Roman Empire, like this new cult but Judaism had this very old, established, it was considered established, and the pagan empire allowed the practice of the Jewish religion without persecution. That, that little detail is going to become important here in just a second. But I want you all to understand that this is the general context of the Sermon of Hebrews, right? Which was written for Christians around Rome who are getting their lunch eaten because of the the tensions against them. So now let me just shift. That's the context. Let me, let me shift to describe some of the main differences between the Christian minority culture and the pagan majority culture because this is now going to help us understand the problem that's addressed throughout this sermon, throughout Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, all right? 
So very predictably, we're at point two. Let me begin with an, illust- uh, an illustration. So I have this friend uh, who comes from a family that struggles with being overweight. And worse, they uh, have a really high risk of diabetes, right? And so kind of knowing this about herself, she would try to go on runs. But like running is like really hard for her, right? She doesn't have the body type. She's not like those crazy skinny people who just look like they're dancing on water. Like, who is that guy? Yeah, she's not like that. And, um, you know, when she runs, her ankles hurt, her knees hurt. She get these, like, terrible headaches. It's really, really hard for her. So she tries it. She runs for two weeks. But after two weeks, like, she weighs herself, and she's only lost, like, half a pound. And in that moment of pain, she... Uh, She's like, I'm done. You know, that pain is more compelling than the price. So she just quits. She thought to herself, what a waste of time. Like, what a waste of time. I feel like I'm torturing myself every time I run. Now, this was years ago. So I see her, this friend, and I'm looking at her, and she's in great shape. I'm like, wow. So I ask, hey, what do you do to keep in shape? What's the trick? And she says, oh, yeah, I run. I'm like, what, 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 what happened? Like, what changed? Like, did you become a better runner? And she's like, no, not at all. I'm, I'm terrible at it. I'm still very bad at it. I have terrible run. I have terrible form. And it still hurts as much as ever. And so I ask, like, so why do you do it? And that her answer, her response to me is, is profound. She says, the pain does not diminish, but it becomes more tolerable Or rather, I gladly accept it when I think about the prize I get for enduring it. And so I run very regularly with a great promise of health. The promise of health was more compelling to her than her pain. Now listen, that short little story is going to help us understand the spiritual dynamics of what's going on with this original audience. See, the problem you guys, it's not simply that they were being oppressed. The problem was is that the pain that they were feeling was more compelling than the prize, and so they were tempted to quit. Let Let me explain. So the society and the culture that they lived in was very unsupportive towards Christianity. So being a Christian was a very painful experience. The dominant culture was using the power of disgrace and shame and affliction to seduce the minority culture away from their faith. See, listen, to say that Christ is Lord, that's not just a religious claim. That is a political claim. Sure, listen, the Greco-Roman polytheism was super tolerant, right? They had this whole buffet of deities. They had sun gods and sex gods and rain gods. I mean, there were God, there, you could choose your favorite, right? Like there, was all, there was even kind of local deities. But rendering worship to these gods was a common practice, even whatever your favorite one was, within the political sphere. And so it demonstrated loyalty to the empire and more specifically loyalty to the emperor. But because Christians didn't participate in these sort of cultic practices, they weren't simply like considered like people practicing a different religion. They were seen as subversive agents to the empire. 
And like, maybe they were, you know? And so the majority culture put incredible pressure on them through shame and aggression. And remember, social pressure is very persuasive. Ask any middle schooler, ask your high schoolers, right? Everyone knows what I'm talking about here, right? I mean, it's like, the, it's like the kid who goes to college, he's taking freshman year biology, goes into this big lectinar with a hundred other students. The, 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 the professor walks in, silences the students, and he says, God is dead and science has killed him. And 99 students just jeer and cheer. Ha, ha, ha. They laugh at foolish religious people who still believe in the mythology of God. And you got that like one guy, right? No one has offered him an intellectual argument. And yet there is incredible pressure to conform due to shame because it's powerful. I mean, he doesn't, that one student doesn't want to be like the one anti-intellectual dude, right? That doesn't feel good. Hey, everyone, I'm the one who still believes in fairy tales. Like that, who likes that, right? The pressure is intense. Social acceptance and persuasion is powerful, and so for this original audience in Hebrews, there's a strong temptation to just give up, assimilate, spare themselves some grief. Those, these are the circumstances that shamed and threatened Christians for having a meaningful affection and loyalty to Christ Jesus. And so what happened is the members of the small church, of all these house churches, right, uh, they're at the spiritual crossroads. Would they feel the pain and the pressure and say, yeah, uh, yeah, it's not worth it. I'm done. Or would they feel the pain and say, this is nothing compared to the promises I have in Christ? Which would be more compelling? Listen, you guys, that original audience... They're a lot like us here in Denver. They lived in cities. They were urban Christians. They lived in a pluralistic context like us where there are a lot of beliefs and lots of religions. And for them, Christian belief brought shame, hostility. And that's what it brings us to. It's not the coolest thing to be a Christian. Heads up, spoiler alert. I mean, they ask questions like this. If God is so committed to my happiness, why is life so hard? Anyone ask that question? I know I have. I know I have. And, that's, and this is what I don't want you to miss. And this is why like, we're going to study Hebrews for a couple months. So relevant for modern people. Although you and I don't experience like religious oppression per se, it is as difficult. It was as difficult for them to be a Christian as it is for us in this culture. There are so many powerful cultural pressures that seduce us away from Christ. The dominant culture we live in is hostile, hostile to our desire to love Jesus. I mean, listen, you guys, come on. Like Denver, they're cool with religion. Like religion is fine so long as you don't take it too seriously, right? 
Don't be a weirdo, right? And honestly, because there's like so many weird cults out there, like Church of Cannabis, anybody? Like, because it's like so stinking weird, it, some of that kind of gets dumped on us and it makes it really hard and even more difficult to, follow, to be followers of Christ. And so what happens, as it did to them, as it's happening to us, is that we become nice, religious people. I mean, we go to church when it's com- convenient and we'll give a little bit of money, not too much, but a little bit, so we feel respectable and we try to be nice. I mean, we're not obnoxious, but more than anything, we become chameleons and we become lukewarm and we find our identities in other things. I mean, perhaps, perhaps we used to be passionate about Jesus like when we first heard about him, but now he seems a little less interesting to us. And we certainly wouldn't die for Jesus. I mean, that's an absurd thought. I mean, I understand going to church, that's fine, but dying for Jesus, really? You see? In short, my fear for myself, my own children, for us, is that we're growing apathetic. And I'm sad to report that that is the principal problem that we have in common with the original recipients of this sermon to the Hebrews. So let me just review real quickly. So we began, we looked at the historical context, and then we considered the principal problem that's being addressed throughout this whole letter, throughout this whole sermon of Hebrews. So now we're at the very final part of this introductory sermon, and it's the solution. What does what this preacher, this pastor, offer out as the solution? So let me begin with one more anecdote. So, you know, I've been, um, I've been asking myself recently uh, this question. What is worth dying for? We don't ask that question often. It's a little bit macabre. <laughs> uh, but seriously, what in this life are worth the price of your beating heart? What is it? Uh, depending on how you answer that question, uh, you will answer this question. Well, what's worth living for? I mean, I get the what's worth dying for, but what's worth living for? Now, because I served in the military for about 10 years, you know, I, you have to think about these kinds of questions, you know? Like, I served during, like, September 11th, guys going off to Afghanistan and Iraq, and I remember taking the oath of office, right, the pledge that says, I will cheerfully die in defense of my country, right? So guys like me think about this a little bit. But, you know, I was thinking more recently about um, the invasion of Normandy, June 6th, 1944, history buffs, right? Sometimes we call this D-Day. So I don't know if you know about this, but just within a few days, the Allied forces lost nearly 10,000 soldiers. Within days, everyone knew, everyone knew that this would be one of the bloodiest battles in history. And even before the invasion, most of those soldiers knew that they weren't going to escape this battle. They weren't going to walk away from this battle. That would be it for them. They knew the risks, and they still willingly fought, and they did so with bravery. Why did they do it? Why didn't they just flee? Why would they willingly give up their lives, this existence on this earth? Why? 
And the answer is, is they valued something even more profoundly than they valued the breath in their lungs. Soldiers realize that there are things in this world that are more valuable than even their own life. Now, do y'all see what I'm getting at here? Because this is like so true on a spiritual realm. The author of Hebrews wants his listeners to understand what the key is to faithfulness in in really oppressive and difficult and shameful circumstances. And this is the key. They must value something more profoundly than they value their own lives. And what is it? It's Jesus. Listen, listen really carefully, please. Like, in order to be willing to give up your life, you have to believe that Jesus is greater than your life. You have to believe that Jesus is supremely valuable. You have to be convinced of it. That's the theme of Hebrews. That Jesus is supremely valuable. That's the deal. And we're going to see it time and time again. He is the solution. And we're going to see that people were tempted to give up on Jesus and run to Judaism because they would be protected with Judaism from all the shame and embarrassment and aggression from the dominant culture. But if they did that, they would give up Jesus. And that doesn't make any sense if Jesus is supremely valuable. You're going to see this theme in time and time again in Hebrews. You're going to see that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to the priests. He's superior to the ceremonial sacrifices. He is superior to the pain that they are experiencing. He's superior to everything. He is superior to life itself. And the logic is this. If we are to lose everything, I mean everything, it still pales in comparison to what we get with Jesus forever. Jim Elliott, the great missionary who died in the Amazons for his faith, he says, he says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so this preacher, the author of Hebrews, he's, he's setting out to portray in this ancient, beautiful sermon a vision of Jesus that's magnificent, a vision of Jesus that is superior to everything, even the next beat of your heart. And if people walk away from Jesus, it's because they don't know what they're walking away from. They don't understand his promises. Listen, if, if God is this impersonal force, he's not worth your life. If God is Santa Claus, he's not worth your life. If God is really just many gods, like childishly competing with one another, it's not worth your life. If God has never tasted pain, he's not worth your life. But... If God is who he says he is, who he's revealed to be in the scriptures, if the Bible's true, and it is, he's worth everything. Like everything. 
He's worth your sadness. He's worth your tears. He's worth, worth, worth your, your, your alienation. He's worth your embarrassment. He's worth your loyalty. He's worth your life. And so that's how come the author exhorts us. And, and Brittany read it to us today that just represents the heart of, of Hebrews. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is our only hope and chance for persevering until the very end. Y'all, life is hard. Like, it's really hard. Jesus is our only hope. He's better. In this sermon that we call Hebrews, it's going to challenge us to believe this. It's to believe that Jesus, who presently is unseen, is more real and more beautiful than anything your eyes can see or your hands can touch. And because of this magnificent vision of Jesus, we are called to this unqualified commitment, this unwavering perseverance, and this willingness, even joyfully, to suffer as a consequence of our faith. And so we're going to dive into it next week in chapter 1. Would you come back? Let me just see how Jesus is better, how he's superior. Jesus is better than life. And our suffering just makes us more like him because he's a God who suffered too. Would you come back next week and we'll get right into chapter one? Let me pray for us. Father, I just confess that even as I preach this sermon, I don't even know that it's true for me. I just recognize the own hypocrisy and the waffling faith even in me. Oh God, but if you would be merciful to us, if you'd be merciful to me and to our children, we'll follow you. But Lord, we really need your spirit to work in us. We're just begging you, do a new work in us. Bring life where there was death. Bring passion where there's apathy. Oh, please, Lord, it's been a long time. And I don't know, I don't know how certain I am about all of this stuff, but I want to be, Lord. And sometimes I confess, Lord, you're not that beautiful, but Lord, I know that your word will show us something so Come be with us. Like, just, just do a new work in us. We're just begging you. We really want Denver Prez to be alive and well and loving Jesus. And, and life is so complex right now with the pandemic and so complex. And we don't have all the answers. But Lord, come. Make Jesus beautiful and believable. And that will just make everything okay. We love you, Lord. Keep us faithful, for we pray in your name. Amen.